Well, thank you all for joining us for a discussion about the Texas budget. I'm Karina Kling. I'm the political anchor for Capital Tonight on Spectrum News, now that we're called formerly Time Warner Cable News, formerly News 8 Austin, formerly YNN. So good luck keeping up with that. Um, on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I'm happy to welcome you to the sixth annual Trib Fest and to this panel, The Best Budget for Texas, with representatives Donna Howard, Justin Rodriguez, Giovanni Capriglioni, and Larry Gonzalez. The panel is supported by the Association of Texas Professional Educators. Those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no role in determining the event's content, panelists, or line of questioning. On to the panelists, Representative Donna Howard is a Democrat who has represented, represented District 48 in Austin since 2006. She serves on the Appropriations Committee and is Vice Chair of the House Higher Education Committee. Representative Larry Gonzalez is a Republican who represents the Round Rock area. He served District 52 since 2011. Representative Gonzalez also serves on the Appropriations Committee and chairs the Sunset Advisory Commission. Representative Giovanni Capriglioni at the end there is a Republican representing District 98 in North Texas. He was elected in 2012 and also serves on the Appropriations Committee, plus local and consent and investments and financial services. Get all that right? And Representative Justin Rodriguez was also elected in 2012. He's a Democrat from San Antonio representing District 125. He too serves on the Appropriations Committee. Hence the theme here. Yeah, works out. <laughs> as well as the rules and resolutions, pensions, and TRS health benefits plan. This event will last 60 minutes. We'll have about 15 to 20 minutes for questions at the end. And lastly, if you want to tweet, please do so using the hashtag TTF. So let's get started. What is the best budget for Texas? First off, the burning question, who's going to chair your committee next <laughs> session? <laughs> Representative. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> You know, we obviously hear a couple of names being floated out there that uh, have been a part of the process at some point in time, and um, they are names we're hearing are very qualified people that I think we could work with. You know, it's the speaker's choice. Mm -hmm. uh, the elections have to happen, and then the speaker will make the appointments after we've convened. So, it's premature to actually say any name right now. I think, but. Um, we have some good folks who have been working very hard on appropriations for a while, and I think we'll have a good chair. Do you think it puts you behind not having somebody in place just yet? No, I don't think so. I mean, you've seen that, you know, whenever, you know, Representative Pitts was leaving, Chairman Pitts was leaving, there was still, you know, no one quite named at that time. So we've had that discussion before. If, if you know the chair is leaving, then how do, you, how do you fill that, and when do you fill that? And the decision's been made. You know, you let, um, like, John Otto is still very much involved in the mm -hmm. process, and he'll be involved right in that base bill. Um, so John is still the chairman of appropriations, is, is kind of how we've, we've approached that and historically, and we're doing it again the same way. And, and I think, too, you're going to have a core group of folks who come back, right? I mean, I think Gio and I are, we came in the same uh, term, as you mentioned, um, you know, both served on appropriations this last session. Uh, you know, Don has been there a little bit longer, Larry's been there longer. So I think you're always going to have tur turnover, right? You've got members that turn over, you're going to have chair people that turn over. So I think you're going to have, leading up to session, you know, a good core group of folks who come back, who've been working on the budget throughout the interim. And so um, whoever the chairman is, I, I'm, I, we trust, I think the speaker will pick the best person. But on that note, too, I'll add to Justin's right about turnover. I think there are 99 members of the Texas House who, like me, have three, three terms or less experience. And I tell people the, the tough thing about that is loss of institutional knowledge. Mm -hmm. The good thing about that is loss of institutional knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> because then you have fresh eyes and you know, young guys like me, I've come in, you know, chairing, chairing Sunset, 
and I've changed a lot of things how Sunset operates. So I think there is a very plus side to having uh, fresh eyes look mm -hmm. at things, but you still need that longitudinal look at things. You still need those members who have been, like I've worked in every article I think in the budget, right? So you still have to have some knowledge going forward on what these programs actually mean, what the line items mean, how they've changed over the years, and what it means for this specific biennium coming up. So we definitely lean on those broad shoulders of those who have been there for a while. I'm so glad Larry called himself young, because I can be super young um, now. So. <laughs> Any, any thoughts uh, from the end there? Uh, I don't know who will be the yeah. chair, but I'll definitely take myself out of the running. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll uh, start with the young and work their way up. Um, you're going into this next session with less general revenue than two years ago. Last time it was about an $8 billion surplus. This time probably less than $4 billion. Lagging oil prices are being blamed for a cooling Texas economy, but last session you decided to send vote two voters a constitutional amendment that will move five billion dollars from general sales tax money into roads rather than using available funds. So are you all to blame for what's happening this next time around? No. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't give you a yes or no question then. <laughs> I think some of the uh, some of the things we did are, are things that were priorities of, of taxpayers and individuals here. I mean transportation has always been something that we needed to invest in. So we put something in place that allows long range funding of that. Uh, taxes, obviously, that's probably the number one thing I hear about is tax cuts. So those are things we, we have to put in. And, and uh, I, you know, it's just something that we think is going to be necessary for us to be able to contain our costs on, on the budget going forward. Well, I would actually say that we are partially responsible for what happened here. Clearly, there's a change in the economy. We know about that. Uh, we've been told by the comptroller, you know, we're not headed into a recession. It's just slower growth that's going on, but that does impact the revenue streams. But in addition to that, of course, we did have the tax cuts. Uh, I think some of us felt that was a, a premature uh, move to make, especially when we knew that the oil and gas industry was declining at the time. Um, it took uh, about $4 billion off the revenue stream right away. And then in addition to that, as you mentioned, the constitutional amendment that is looking at taking an additional $5 billion off of the growth to go to transportation, which of course we need to fund transportation. I think part, part of it too, uh, the issues a lot of times with the budget this last session I think were more between the House and the Senate, almost than between Republicans and Democrats at times. We had a very good bipartisan agreed upon budget that came out of the House that actually appropriated funds for transportation that were not in the final budget that came from the Senate and that ultimately passed. So I think we were trying to actually put more money into education, into transportation, into reimbursement rates for Medicaid, things that would have made a real difference in the lives of Texans. And those were not in the final budget. Uh, that's why several of us did, ended up not voting for that final budget. Um, the, the cuts that were made uh, are to two revenue streams that go into public education. So we're already looking at less dollars coming in specifically for public education that have to be made up with general revenue. And we've scraped off uh, the revenue growth there and for sales tax uh, to put in transportation, which means, again, robbing Peter to pay Paul, basically. Representative, Representative Gonzalez, I see you shaking your head. Do you agree? I mean, look, <laughs> I, I think the body historically, and for those who, who don't know me, I've walked in this building in 1991 as a young staffer. So nine sessions as staff, three as a member so far. And I think what you, what you see is there are, the body tends not to have a longer look at things sometimes. 
And I think the body looks at things in a, in a two-year window when that two-year window has four-year, six-year, eight-year consequences. And so, you know, I'm a little slower to move on a few things just because I like to methodically think about, but what happens next? So for instance, we're on, we're on appropriations, we're sitting there in February and March of 2015, trying to project what numbers we can use that are good for the end of August of 17. It's a very difficult task to look 30 months in advance and kind of plan for it. That's a far enough look into the future that I think caution should prevail is let's, let's be careful how we go forward on some of this stuff. And so we're gonna be short. Um, it'll be a session of priorities, uh, no, no doubt about that. Um, and I think the leadership's in, in a position on the House side to do some really good things. I know um, we still want to look at education funding even though the court says we don't have to. I think the House wants to. And so you'll see us continue to push on some of those things that Representative Howard was, was just mentioning because it's the right thing to do. Would you say it was a wrong move last session then? I don't think it was a wrong move. Um, there are a longer look at things, that, and, and Donna's correct. The truth of the matter is, the bottom line is, that money's off the table now, right? That's, that, that's just a fact, and that's not being partisan or being critical. The fact is that money is off the table now. So then what, right? Now you have to go back and determine what those priorities are going forward um, to set up the budget you know, next, next time. And, and I would just say too, the, the other interesting dynamic is that we have two bodies working on this budget, right? I mean, um, we had a House budget last session that was voted on, I think in March, that I think overwhelmingly was, was a very good budget, right? We had both uh, bipartisan support, uh, more money in, in public ed, some significantly fewer dollars going to border security. Of course, you know, when those things merge and you end up in conference committee with the Senate, it's a different uh, priorities, right? And so um, I think that's the other thing we have to be mindful of is there is going to be different priorities from the House than there are from the Senate. Um, historically, that's the case, but I think even more so moving forward into this next session, um, it's gonna be very tricky to figure out, look, if we have priorities, and I think we work pretty well together, you know, I agree with Donna that we are partly to blame um, uh, you know, for this last uh, shortfall. Um, and, and part of that too is that we are moving more money into dedicated sources of revenue, which is a double-edged sword, right? Because great to have consistent inflow of revenues moving forward, but it also takes the non-dedicated discretionary money away from the legislators to make those decisions that I think our constituents have confidence in us to, to make, right? And they, they want us to make hard leadership decisions, and we, I think, are kind of chipping away at that by more and more making dedicated money and, 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 and really getting stuck into that, into that silo. Well, to, 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 to back that up, you know, John Otto, <coughs> Chairman Otto is, is, and he said it publicly very many times, it's, it's been published many times, he's very quick to show that of the $209.4 billion two-year budget, 17% is actually for discretion for us to move around. Right. And so when you've got 17% of $210 billion, it just shows you when you have GRD funds, dedicated funds, people say, oh, but there's $4 billion sitting there. Well, the four billion, you know, three point four spoken for. Mm -hmm. So you really only have six hundred million available for shortfalls. I think, and we don't even have that now. Yeah. It's been revised down to where we don't even have that. Basically, basically, all we have are the GRD funds, which again gets us away. We've been trying to chip away at that for the past several yeah. sessions to yeah. to start either appropriating those dollars or stop collecting them, That's saying right. we're going to use them for something and then not, right. and just using it to to certify the budget uh, with having less money to work with this time, we're pretty much gonna to have to rely on the GRD funds 
which means we're getting away from that honesty and transparency in our budgeting process and the, the effort that we've been making. And, and as Larry said, basically all the money that's going to be available to us this time, surplus dollars when we come back, is already accounted for, basically. We just haven't appropriated it for its intended purpose. So you think there's going to be some differences between the House and the Senate? <laughs> you think? As sure as none of us will be chairman of appropriations. So. I notice you only have House members here. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe that, there was a reason for that. Um, you, we mentioned school payments earlier. I also want to talk about Medicaid and speaking of just being honest. Every two years you have to come back and pay off the balance because you underfunded each session. How really balanced is the Texas budget if you're constantly leaving a hole for the next session's lawmakers to have to deal with? Well, I, you know, on, on Medicaid, that's happened. At least the two sessions I've been mm -hmm. here, we've had to do that. But at least I know in this last session, that wasn't the intent going out. I think we, we did intend to fund Medicaid uh, fully. And some of those costs are, are just keep growing. I mean, again, in my first session, public education was the number one expense for the for the budget. Today, it's, it's health care costs. There. So I think you know, we're, we try to guesstimate, but we can't always uh, know exactly what all the costs are going to be. I mean, let's go to the comptroller's estimate. I mean, you're making an estimate a year, two years out, and we're having this discussion about, okay, well, the projections are not exactly the right. That's only about one and a half percent off, right? Now, one and a half percent of 200 billion is a big number, but in the whole scheme of things, we do go out, we tried, uh, I think this last time, to fully fund what we intended to fund, and some costs good, get higher. What's your response to that? And just in terms of being able to well, I don't think off to the I, next time around. Or? I don't think we actually fully funded the uh, the rising cost of health care that was anticipated. I think we were trying to look at fully funding the the case growth. That was the intention anyway. Um, but we also we also just have an issue with a, a growing population that is in poverty. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about wanting to decrease, I hear from some of my colleagues wanting to decrease the, the cost of Medicaid. Well, the only way we're really going to do that is if we address poverty, because the people that are getting Medicaid are those that are, are in uh, the lower uh, income brackets and need this kind of assistance. Um, I guess I'll segue into one of the things that I think we do need to be talking about more, and that's the Medicaid expansion. Um, certainly, there are state costs that would uh, be associated with that, even though initially it would be 100% covered by the federal government. But there have also been the states that have had expansion that have, have benefited financially from it. Their rising health care costs have been less than. They've found ways to recoup some of their costs. Plus, as Larry was saying a while ago, not, maybe not about this, but it's the right thing to do. It's the way to, to, to cover the costs. <laughs> that was a sweet. Yeah, that's, that's kind of a stretch. Um, but we know we, we, we have we have hospitals that are having to close. We we have a, 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 an unsustainable system right now of uncompensated I mean, care. Every time I look at the news, okay, there's another health exchange, another insurance company. There is a problem. You're right. There, hundreds right. of millions of dollars in losses. You have Alaska, where three of the four providers decided to leave. Gone. You have here in Texas, again, some of them either considering or having left. Exactly right. And if you look, I again, agree. If you look at Louisiana or you look at New Mexico, who have what decided not to, to do. do the experiment. Right, what not to do. Uh, but you haven't, I guess, you know, right now, I don't, I don't think that it's a compelling argument to go for that. It's, it's, 
a compelling argument for me because those are our income tax dollars right. that have been sent to the federal government. We have already paid them and they're not coming back to benefit Texans. Billions of dollars that we have already paid. I want to see it come back here. And, and you're right, there are big problems with the system. This is an unwieldy system where you've tried to combine a public system with the private market to try to get everybody to buy into it. And we have a lot of things that we could fix about it that we haven't been able to because we have a Congress that won't address fixing some of these things. So I agree with you that there are issues, but I also believe that it's compelling when we have a budget shortfall that we're anticipating and we have billions of dollars that are our dollars that we need to bring but, back to Texas. But what I would say is some of these issues that we're seeing now, we knew about at the beginning of this, way mm -hmm. back in 2008 and 2010. Mm -hmm. and I mean, we're, we're going off on affordability. Okay, I'm here. sorry. But, yeah. uh, I mean, again, I look at the news, and other than the current administration, no one is saying that this is working, right? So I, I look at it. One of the big pieces we left out was, being, was requiring that we fill that Medicaid gap. And when the courts ruled that that was voluntary and we didn't have to, that made a big difference in how this system could work. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that one. Right. So you think that this is the way to go to... Uh, Representative Gonzalez, expand Medicaid. That's your Some, take something on that I've said, <laughs> something that I've said from that you actually <laughs> said <laughs> without Donna quoting me. Uh, <laughs> what I've said from the dais in appropriations is the rules are changing, and to buy in because right now it's 100 percent, two years from now it's 75 percent, five years from now it's from 50 percent. We shouldn't do that because the rules are changing. It's very easy to say what the rules are now. And it's very easy to say you should do something now based on a set of rules. But when those rules change, we're going to be left with a much higher expense than we think we're going to be. So if somebody kind of like were to with say, our public schools? So if somebody were to say to me. Higher than that, though. I mean, look at the yeah. increase. I'm We've changed the rules a bunch of times. Right. So, so sorry. I, I think going forward, if, if, if you say we, we should expand it because our costs are only going to be this and they're going to be met or matched by the federal government this, well, today, but going back to my longitudinal look at things and how it takes time, as soon as those rules change, here we go again, right? It's going to change again. So I think you get to be very careful looking at formula funding now. This is at a state level, a federal level, and what a match is, because that can absolutely change overnight, and then the tables have turned on us, and it's a lot more than we think it's going to be. Uh, well, I'm going to, of course, back up my homegirl here, but, <laughs> uh, but, but no, I think here's, here's the other thing, and I'm not going to point my finger at either of my colleagues here, but I think the problem we have is that there are folks that pick and choose, um, you know, okay, let's say, for example, there's also going to be an escalating cost for resources we're putting into border security, right? Um, you know, that's not something we pick apart when we put $700 million or now a billion dollars into that program, but when it comes to healthcare, we pick it to pieces, right? So I, I think there's an interesting discussion to have that, look, if we're gonna really pick these things apart, let's do it across the board. Certainly you're right, I mean, healthcare is an uncontrollable cost, and um, I, I think though we're doing this, a disservice to the constituents of Texas when we can't even have a discussion about a, you know, even a hybrid Texas solution, right? It doesn't have to be what another state's doing, maybe it can be some variation, but to not even have a discussion about that, and, and again, to Donna's point, not even leaving money on the table, but our money going to other states, right? I mean, it's being spent, um, and, and sometimes, look, it's, a, it's 
Uh, again, not pointing fingers, but I think it's a political statement. It depends on who's uh, making, who's in the administration in D.C. You know, that, that happens, right? I mean, let's, let's deal with the reality of it. But, um, but, but I think, you know, in fairness, you know, it's a discussion when you think about, um, you know, over four million folks in Texas uh, being uninsured, having one of the highest rates of uninsured folks in the nation. Um, we can't just put our heads in the sand on that. I mean, we've got folks struggling out there, and if there is a solution to leverage uh, federal dollars, we ought to take a look at it. Obviously, something you will be taking a look about. I'm going to try and get us a little bit back on track, but um, <laughs> good luck. But also, I mean, just well, it's a good discussion. Um, speaking of Medicaid, and this is kind of you know end of the week, but um, a lot of money, and a decision was just made from the Texas Supreme Court yesterday when it came to when it comes to Medicaid therapy services for thousands of disabled ch children. Do you regret the money that was cut there? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, there were bipartisan, a uh, lot of legislators, Democrats and Republicans, who wrote letters saying that we needed to hold off on this, that we have some concerns about the data that was used to, to make this decision, but more importantly, that uh, there's not been uh, enough of um, study and, and data to show us the impact of the cuts on the delivery of the services so that we can make sure that no one would go without the services that they need. And it's estimated that 60,000 children would be deprived of these very important services. This is a, a big problem and a big issue. And the, the fact that we have the legislative session right around the corner and they can't wait to implement this till we can get back in session and have the legislature have hearings and talk about this and debate it and come up with what's going to make the most sense here for Texans, I, I, I just think that's what should be done right now. It needs to wait. Well, and those cuts are now allowed yeah. to go into effect. Yes. So, I mean, what, do you do this immediately next session? Do you think this becomes a big issue that's being taken up? I think, yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's obviously had a lot of conversation. I've had constituents in my district that I've gone and I've met with to discuss. I would say that this is definitely one of those things. And it was a rider, right, uh, mm -hmm. towards the end. It was a rider at the end. It was a rider at the end that, um, and I'll agree with From the Senate. Howard. From the Senate. Uh, Representative Howard, that you know, it, uh, we didn't probably spend enough time on our side to make sure that those cuts were being put in uh, were the, the right amount, maybe, or even that we had stratified it and said, OK, this is because of higher uh, reimbursement rates, or this is one group that is paying higher than others. I think. We had looked at some studies, we had come out with a round number, and we had done that, and, and we probably have to go back and look at it. It shouldn't have happened, and we need to fix it. Because for a lot of people, it's a theoretical um, conversation. Uh, I have an autistic son um, on the spectrum who benefited greatly from OT, PT, and speech path services he got. So a lot of people like sit there and talk about the families who did or did not get services. I am a family who got services. And it benefited my son greatly in his um, social interaction at school, which of course helps him academically. And I can tell you as a daddy, not as a legislator, I can tell you as a daddy uh, how important that stuff is. And, and that's one that shouldn't have happened and, and we need to fix it um, when we get back as soon as possible. Yeah, and I, and I would agree. I mean, I think there are folks all over the state who are being impacted. Um, and, and I think it just goes to show there are things obviously that happen during a 140 day session that have unintended consequences. Yeah. I, I don't think this was something that was um, intentional, but I think, you know, you know, there's an argument to be made. I talk to constituents back home all the time about our, um, I guess, system of government, right? I mean, we, we meet only every two years. Should there not be a mechan mechanism in place 
um, for these kind of instances where, look, we can't wait. I mean, there are folks out there hurting because of these decisions, um, you know, where we can maybe in an interim uh, come in and make some decisions to make people whole and just get them back on their feet. Um, I think it's a discussion we should have because, again, um, you know, every day that goes by, we're here sitting up here saying, hey, the, the session's right around the corner, it's January, but there are folks who have been hurting since earlier this year for months that, um, you know, have, have no recourse. And part of the issue here, too, was that it, uh, the process in that we get the final budget with an up or down vote. We don't get to take things apart and put things in or out at that point. So, you know, you can, you can not know certain things are in there because it's so voluminous and it's at the last minute and you don't have enough mm -hmm. time to, to read every single word in there. But it's also that you then have to make decisions, okay, am I going to vote against this budget because, of this, because of this one thing? Yeah, so it's a, it, the process itself makes it very difficult at the very end of Russia. the session. It's, it's not as if this had been in conversation since January. It had not right. been in it's conversation. It's not as if this right. body contemplated right. this and talked about this and vetted this and decided no. Right. This was a rider at the very end. I, you know, it's, uh, it, it shouldn't have happened and we have right. to fix it. And a lot of those families showed up at the Capitol last week for that mm -hmm. hearing and spoke out about their concerns. Yes. Maybe one thing we should consider doing is coming out with the budget a little bit earlier, right? Give us a little bit more time to the best budget for Texas, an early budget. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, to, to that point, I mean, you know, I think this last uh, session, we were on the House floor. It was an all-nighter. I mean, we were making decisions after being up all night at, and voting on a budget at five or six in the morning, which, you know, I, I mean, probably I would imagine most folks don't make their best decisions um, after being, you know, uh, you know, sleep deprived and, and in that environment. I know we don't do it at home, right, with our, our, our house budgets, but uh, so, so I think there's some ways that we can improve that process. And it, by any means, doesn't mean folks aren't diligent. I mean, there are people out there, and we do our best to read and, and uh, comb over. Our staffs are great, um, but you know, it's probably not the best way to make decisions that are impacting millions of, of uh, lives. I want to move on to school finance. We're running short on time. Um, I'm sure most people in this room know this, but just in case, the Texas Supreme Court ruled it constitutional, <laughs> but barely, and they encouraged you to enact reforms. But if it's constitutional, do you think there will be incentive? And I know you guys were saying earlier that from the House side, it does sound like there will be. But how do you push this? Well, we're meeting next week, right? We're meeting Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah. Appropriations at the joint hearing, appropriations and pub to do just this. I, mean, so I, I think that's the beginning yeah. of the conversation. Yeah, oh, yeah. We're, we're buckling down on it. Yeah, I, th I think there's going to be incentive. Certainly, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I think the folks I've spoken with um, know that they uh, talk to folks back in their communities, and there are still um, folks who are suffering from the 2011 uh, cuts from public ed. Um, I think it's still a third of the school districts that are below um, what they were prior to the cuts. Um, so, so I think there'll be some sense of urgency. You know, and, and the reality is, look, the, the, the court came back and said, you know, the system is minimally adequate, right? I mean, who, who, who amongst us sends our kids off to school and says, do what's minimally acceptable today, right, <laughs> little Johnny? I mean, that's not the, the, what we do. I mean, we, we ask uh, for them to strive for the best, and I think we need to strive as legislators to come up with more money and, and do better by our public school kids. And, and, yeah. and I think we did last session. I mean, Representative Howard talked about it. I mean, Jimmy Don Aycock had a bill, yeah. and we looked at formula funding, we looked at putting more cash. I mean. The house, the house did this last time too, so I have no reason to believe we wouldn't do it again. We've already done it once, mm -hmm. and we, we wanted to send a message that this is a priority of ours, and you've heard the speaker talk about it as well this interim. We're, this is a priority of ours, and the house is. Now, I can't speak for the body, 
And this is the bicameral system, and, and uh, I can't tell you what's going to happen. I can tell you that Jimmy Don's uh, uh, ideas uh, had, had no traction in, in the Senate, but I think that on the House side, you have a lot of members who really want to look at this and just um, you know, find a way to make this work. And, uh, and of course, you know, Jimmy Don Acock's not coming back. But I'm sure we have leadership in place to, to take over this, this discussion to work on, you know, that word equitable, right? Yeah. And uh, Well, part of the reason that could have worked last time, though, and we had an opportunity that we squandered, is that we did have a surplus that we could work with. This time, not having the same kind of money available is going to make it more difficult to sell a plan because the, the reason that was going to work, we thought, was because everybody was going to benefit. Yeah. If you work with the same pie and you just slice it differently, mm -hmm. then you're going to have winners and losers. And it makes it very difficult with the diverse types of school districts we have across the state to get everybody to, or a majority even, to vote on a revised plan. So that's going to be part of the challenge we have this time. But I think one of my main priorities, and I hope it's going to be with my colleagues up here, is to make sure that any property value increases that happen get pushed back into education rather than swept over into to GR. Uh, we did that last time. We paid for education-related uh, functions with the increased property value dollars that came in because typically, as probably a lot of people in here know, as property values increase, the state share decreases. Uh, so the state gets a windfall benefit from that. Instead of the state using that increased property value, though, to just pay for healthcare, transportation, and the other things, put it back into education, put it back into the basic allotment. Make sure that uh, all districts are getting some benefit from this. And I think there's a lot of uh, uh, common ground around that right now, and a lot of groups that may be very different types of districts that are coming to uh, agreement that that may be something we can all rally around. It will mean, though, that we have to use those dollars. Is there room in the budget this next time around for more tax cuts? Ooh, gosh. I don't think so. <laughs> I think we're already in a problem now because yeah. of what happened last time. Well, so. and I think, you know, to Donna pointed out, you know, slicing up the pie differently, what you're talking about there is the shrinking the pie, right? And, and I think, um, you know, I think there were cuts made last session that some would argue were not meaningful to the average uh, Texan. Um, right and at the same time took dollars out of uh, the state's coffers to spend on uh, public education or on healthcare, on some of the necessities. And so um, I, I would say, you know, I, I couldn't support uh, moving forward this session, uh, another tax cut or anything that would take money off the table. Um, you know, back quickly to your education question, I mean, we've got, we mentioned having to work with the Senate. I mean, we've got folks over there who are saying, um, they will really want to focus this session on, on vouchers, right? Um, again, taking money out of the system as it stands when we don't have enough and we can't even get the equity piece straight. So um, I think there's going to probably be some discussion about that. And, and certainly, look, you know, I know back home in our respective um, communities, folks are getting hit with uh, their appraisal, uh, you know, um, uh, reform and, 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 and what their properties are, are valued at. And it's hard hitting, right? Uh, for all of us, uh, but at the same time, we have a growing state. We have a state where you know, hundreds of folks are moving um, every day into the state of Texas, and we've got a lot of needs. And, and so how do you balance that? That's, I guess, why we get paid the big bucks to figure that out. But I, I don't think taking money off the table helps solve the problem. Yeah, at the end, did the Republicans want to weigh in on that? <laughs> I think right now we don't really know 
what our, our projected budget and what, I mean, we can talk about whether we think it's going to be a 1%, 4% lower, or a little bit higher, uh, but if the opportunity presents itself, I do think we have to look at tax cuts. Again, I mean, when those appraisal forms came out, I mean, p people in my district, I, I was at 50% higher uh, appraisal, right? Uh, so there are definitely people who are feeling the pinch of, of taxes. If you look at the franchise uh, tax, we cut it 25% last session, but our revenues actually only reduced by about 15, 16%, right? The, the point of taxes is the taxes are the cut, I guess, that goes to the government uh, and it's a percentage of people's prosperity. So really the focus also needs to be on is making sure that people have jobs, uh, that they're doing well. And whether it's a franchise tax cut or, or some other cuts, I, I do think that that's something that, that's, that's possible in this budget. Well, but part of the problem with the property taxes, which people do complain about, I hear that from mm -hmm. my constituents mm -hmm. too, I know that that's an issue. We have an over-reliance on property tax to pay for things. The state has pushed more and more onto the local property taxpayer. So if the state could use other revenue streams to pay more of the cost of public education, which is the highest part of our property tax bills, that would have an impact. If we did Medicaid expansion, <laughs> uh, we would be able to at least look at the cost that the locals are having to bear right now. Now, our property taxes are partially higher to cover for unco uncompensated health care as well. So, you know, I, I just, I don't know, our, our speaker, at one time, I don't know if he said this lately, but at one time he said, you can't continue to cut your way to prosperity. And I think that's uh, something we need to be thinking about in this particular budget. We want to have an educated workforce pipeline. We want the infrastructure we need to support our growing economy. Uh, we have continued to find less and fewer revenue streams that we're willing to have. We won't even, we won't even talk about expanding revenue streams right now. We have a, a gasoline tax that's been the same uh, number without being indexed for what, almost 30 years now? Something like that? But can I say how that's Yeah, you can. I don't know what it is in Austin. I'm assuming it's similar. We have three and a half percent unemployment right now, right? So I mean, all of these benefits, we see businesses moving in. Uh, in, in my area, Charles Schwab just announced that 1,200 uh, jobs are coming to the area. We, so it, it's, it's hard to also not say that the way that we've been doing this by, by being fiscally conservative, uh, hasn't resulted in us having uh, these jobs that we need in order to pay for other services. So, I mean, that, that's been part of it. I mean, why are people moving to Texas? And why are these companies moving to Texas? Because they look at their balance sheet, they look at what their, their cash flow is going to be, and they're saying, hey, you know what? Texas has, uh, has a lot of, you know, has a, has a really good education system, has infrastructure, has all these other things. Granted, there are some things we have to work on, but hey, we can also do it at a lower cost. Larry, do you want to weigh in on this Without at all before we? Expansion. I think Gio's right. You, you, if it's a, if it's a, I kind of zone in on franchise tax, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, franchise tax is it for me. And so if you kind of zone in on that, and Gio's point, if a, if a better way of doing business via lower franchise tax allows for more employment, allows for more people right. to have the jobs, then, then that's part of the conversation we should have. What Gio's doing is Gio's linking it to a historical look that says it has worked. So uh, the way that we do business in Texas, and the way that we've, we, we, we've, remember when the franchise tax first came, came in, remember I worked for John Otto, right? So it was like $300,000 exemption, then a $600,000 exemption, then it was a million dollar exemption, now it's 25% across the board, blah, blah, blah. And it continues to grow. And so, and so people continue to come here, and, and jobs continue to come here, and, and at least where I come from in Central Texas, it's a big part of how we do things that, that creates more jobs for us. And so you, you can't just take off the table 
immediately no tax cuts, if it can then benefit us on some other side, right. you have to look at that and that's what yep. you're Well, and, and I think too though, I mean, maybe this just comes down to a matter of priorities, right? I mean, I think, um, and I don't want to attempt to oversimplify this, but, but I think on the one hand, if we're saying, look, we have needs with respect to public education, we've got needs with respect to the acute therapy cuts, we have Medicare and Medicaid needs, um, we, we've got all of these needs, TRS healthcare, um, then on the other side you're saying, but we can reduce taxes somehow and take money off the table. I think those are hard uh, to, to justify, from my perspective, um, doing that, right? I mean, I, I just don't see when we've got all of these needs, how do we then, and, and from my uh, perspective, needs that are high priority, how do we then take money off the table by providing tax cuts um, when you know, we don't have the resources to do what we need now? Let me give you an example, a, uh, an example for, for Round Rock, Texas. I had a bill that would allow the city of Round Rock to take a portion of its hotel motel tax, mm -hmm. not send to the state, but keep it for local convention mm -hmm. purposes. Mm -hmm. Now the five big cities can already do this, right? But they don't want anybody else to be able to do it. So Houston does it and Austin and San Antonio. They, they get to keep a portion of what should be going to the state locally. So what I said was, it's good enough for those guys, it's good enough for Round Rock, Texas. We should be able to keep a part of that money. I got dinged because I was taking money that should have gone to GR. Okay. Here's the deal. You know what we did with that money? We just landed the Kalahari Resort Convention Center. This is a 990-room hotel. It is 750 full-time jobs. Right. It is $400 million on our tax rolls. That's not including the hundreds of jobs to build the facility. It is the largest indoor water park in the country. It doesn't exclude the outside water park. It is across the street from Dell Diamond, our AAA baseball team. Imagine what this does now when you go to a conference, you bring your family with you. And all of a sudden you're in Round Rock, Texas, enjoying Kalahari, the outlet malls, Ikea, some AAA baseball, the restaurants that are in there. It, it's a huge, huge deal for Round Rock, Texas. I mean, it's not a Dell-type game changer. It is a significant game changer. Do you know what all that, all that together, all the money together from the hotel motel tax there to the increased sales tax from all the people coming there, all of that money together that we'll be sending into the state absolutely trumps the little bitty bit that I didn't send this first time. And that's why you look at things the way you look right. at them. It has to be a bigger picture. Yeah. I will challenge anybody to argue with me that the little bit of money that I kept home, and I will argue it's the most local kind of control there is, when it's tax dollars that we raised on our facilities, on our infrastructure, from our businesses that we can keep to better our community, that's a hell of a deal. And then we land this? It's amazing. And I'll tell you, the other option for that, for those 300 acres, was 4,000 homes. 4,000 homes with what? 8,000 kids, more of the public school system, all of a sudden we're having to build more schools. The, the, the traffic on, on Highway 79, I mean, the, the, the difference between building 4,000 homes and building Kalahari is significant to what it means to Round Rock, Texas. It was the right thing to do, it was a smart thing to do, and that's just one example of how keeping a little bit of revenue back home. Yeah. But again, I got dinged because I was robbing GR that the, that's the state's money. I, 
doing some pretty good things with it too that will more than multiply what should have gone well, to the all, state. All of this good stuff with the economy and the growth, absolutely, mm -hmm. there's lots of those stories out there and, and we see it. And we know Texas has done a lot better than a lot of other states, so good for us. <laughs> but at the same time, you look at what's happened with the lack of sufficient resources for children in particular in this state. We, we, well, let me start with the, the pregnant mothers who are dying at a higher rate in this state than anywhere in the country, doubling the maternity mortality rate, maternal mortality rate. We've also, though, looking at our children, we have kids that are in poorer schools that we don't have enough money to give them. We have been shortchanging our special education students and uh, not providing services to hundreds of thousands of those, those children. Uh, we just talked about the 60,000 kids that would, disabled children that would lose services. We know that the, that, uh, the courts are dinging us for uh, foster care. We have kids sleeping in state offices. We have kids dying. And yet somehow we have enough money for more tax cuts. My, uh, that doesn't compute with me. But We're balancing this budget on the backs of these children. And I don't think that is appropriate, right, it's not, it's absolutely not the morally right thing to no, do. No, and I, and I totally agree on all of those priorities as well. I do think that we should, uh, you know, if we did end up shortchanging special ed, if there's a mental health illness, I think is a priority. Yes. Uh, CPS also absolutely is a priority. All those things are priority, but until we see the budget in January, I don't know how we know I think we can do all of that, or at least to some extent. And is, I, I, but those are priorities. That's probably a good time to ask you my final question before we open it up to questions then. What about the rainy day fund? It's raining. It's raining. It's raining. Storming. I mean, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's going to have probably more than 10 billion. More than we've ever had. Mm -hmm. So what, what situation, yes. what what situation would it be? Used for what well, one situation would you use it for? Let's go back and redefine the economic stabilization fund because you will never hear me call it the rainy day fund. The economic stabilization fund was designed by the colleagues who preceded us to avoid the ups and downs in the economy and to keep our economy stable. It is stable. When times are good, you put money away. When times are bad, you pull money out to avoid the cuts. That's the definition of the economic stabilization fund. And if anybody thinks they're going to redefine it or hijack it for some other purpose, they are wrong. It is the economic stabilization fund. You put money away when good, and you take money out when, it's, when times are tough to avoid these types of, of, of cuts. By definition, that's what it is. It's been tried to have been changed or redefined to be something else as some untouchable savings account. By definition, it's meant to be spent. Now, the question is, on for what purposes and when, right? So that's the question. But I want to get to just the, to the meat of what it is and the meat of why it exists. And that's why it exists. Now, there are some members who, who have told me that they're OK, even some, some pretty Republican members, who are OK looking at spending in it on a supplemental budget to fix the hole we have until August 17, whereas they don't want to use it to put in a budget that goes forward. Well, even that's a big jump for some of these members, some of these Republican members, to look at that and say, OK, look, we do have a shortfall. That's what it's for. Let's plug the supplemental budget there. So between it shouldn't be touched to it should be touched, but it should be touched only if supplemental. Look, I'm just happy the conversation is shifting toward a conversation about when and where, and not just absolutely not, because by definition, that's not what that fund is. So advocating for using it this next time around. 
The question is for what purposes and when, and then you and, and then you talk about it. And, and I frankly, agree. I don't I don't know that we're going to have much of a choice, right, to to not use it, right. I mean, I think we're in a situation where we've all pointed out the needs, right. I don't want to to rehash those, but listen, I, you know, I think I'm somewhere in between, you know, um, uh, spending. You know, certainly don't want to spend it down. You need to have some of that money for um, stabilizing the economy. But I, I think when you talk about the needs that are out there for, for kids and for seniors and you know everyday Texans, um, and you talk to them, certainly it's a time of need. And I think we need to have a discussion. And I'm thankful that we've got folks who want to have a discussion on both sides of the aisle about prioritizing how we spend that money. Right? Whether it's two billion, three billion, whatever it is. Um, you know, it's a significant amount of money, and we know we're going in that we're not going to have enough uh, to, you know, for the supplemental budget. We're going to have to plug some holes. You know, the TRS healthcare issue we haven't talked about, but that's an escalating cost that is billions of dollars going forward. So, um, so you know, I don't know what the answer is in terms of what we spend it on or even how much, but I think it's something we're going to have to answer pretty quickly as we get into the session because I, I don't think there's an option on the table that I could foresee where we don't have to utilize some of that money this session. And I've been appointed uh, recently to the committee that looks right. at establishing what the, right. the minimum amount is that can be in the fund, uh, five House members, five Senate members, and that will uh, set the stage for uh, whether or not the transfers can be made of new money coming in to the Economic Stabilization mm -hmm. Fund that would be split with uh, the highway fund. Uh, that's part of the purpose there, but we've had some discussions about that too, and, and what's the appropriate amount to have in. There are some of our colleagues who would claim that there is some absolute number, which there really is not. There's a lot of things that the rating agencies look at, so it's, it's, not, it's not an exact amount that must be there. We have to look at what we think it has been used for historically, what it could possibly need to be used for in the future, and then determine how much we need to, to leave in. Plus, as, as Gio was talking about, we are investing some. That's right. Um, we, in the last session, what we did is we took a portion of that, uh, of the rainy day fund, and we've gone and we put it in uh, higher return investments, right? So that's netted us an extra, just on two and a half billion, that's added almost $50 million extra over this year. So, but that's, that's contingent on what the sufficient balance is set to. And I think the sufficient balance isn't just the, you know, this random high number just because we don't want to spend below it, but it is, hey, what do we really need in case of an emergency in order to, uh, uh, to handle our pressing needs and current needs? But it is an economic stabilization fund. So if we come in the next session and, um, and our, our estimates are higher than they were in the previous year, maybe that is not the right time to use the ESF for that. I also think, and I, I need a fact check on this, I'm, I'm sure, but two things that we do is we take and we sweep oil severance taxes and also natural gas severance uh, that goes into this fund. From what I understand, the natural gas portion of it hasn't reached that minimum level of 1987. So in a way, if that doesn't get swept over, we have effectively used some of what would normally be part of the rainy day fund. Let's open it up to questions. Or is it 
that are so underserved. We can highlight to Central Texas and the big cities real big with all these big jobs coming from other states. They're not going to Let me, let, me, let me start very quickly. I have spent months and months and months and months wearing my subcommittee chair hat and my chair of sunset hat, um, almost 20,000 miles um, looking at stuff and going to Brownsville and going to FAR and going to El Paso and going to Beaumont, going to Dallas and going to, goodness gracious, Galveston. I've been all over the state wearing my, wearing my chairman hat looking at things, right? Because um, I fund, one of my jobs as subcommittee chair is 42 agencies. 42 agencies. I want to see it so I know what I'm talking about, so I know what other people are talking about. So to your point, man, I think it should be mandatory that members should travel outside of their district and get an appreciation for other places, because I guarantee you, no matter where I go, when I get into the Valley or into El Paso, I absolutely understand why those members vote the way they do. Because you got to see it, you got to learn it, you got to put yourselves in their shoes, you have to talk to their constituents, and again, the responsibility I have, you know, wearing the hats I have, is, is more of a statewide look, not just HD 52, right? I mean, I have a lot of responsibility. So they're all my constituents when it comes to appropriating 42 agencies. And it's a fascinating trip around the state to learn exactly what those priorities are and how it affects people. And I wish more members would take the time to travel around the state and learn what their colleagues are going through and what issues are important to them. Because I tell you what, it will change your understanding of what you think your little world is all about. And there's a certain appreciation for other members and exactly what they're thinking and why they vote a certain way that you only gain by going to their districts and talking to their folks. And I wish more members would do that. I'm about to plan. Yeah, if I may. Uh, a couple of things I'd like to challenge. <laughs> One of the uh, speakers said that Texas is doing great because we've kept our taxes low and all these. I, I, I would challenge that. Uh, Texas has, uh, among the highest rates of poverty in the entire 50 states, one out of every children under the age of 18 live in poverty in the state of Texas. Our educational system is among the lowest rated in the United States. Uh, I don't need to talk about medical insurance. Uh, congratulations on your 650 minimum wage jobs. That is 700, solving, 750, 400 million on the tax rolls, which will go to pay my schools without having jobs. to have You're kids in schools. You're not solving the problem. No, I, we, we are largely addressing that. I would disagree with you in that we're doing that are, that are jobs that are new to the community. New to the community. Can you deny what I just said? Look, I'm addressing Kalahari. I'm addressing Kalahari since that's what you brought up and that's in HD 52. The construction jobs alone to what that means to us is going to be significant. But then that translates into my permanent jobs in Kalahari. Which also, if you look at the tax base of the city of Round Rock, I challenge you to look at the tax rate of the city of Round Rock and compare it to any place else around here. And it's lower, and do you know why? Because we have infrastructure, because we have jobs, because we have mobility, because companies come to us, because I have commercial property taxes that offset the taxes of every person's home. Home, because we look at it from a commercial standpoint. So if you go back and look at the actual tax rates of the city of Round Rock, you will understand the significance of what Dell means and what Kalahari is going to mean to the individual homeowner who pays less in taxes than anywhere else because the projects that I've described to you 
every single person in Round Rock pays less because of those because of that. Yeah, I would encourage those people to start making some investments in exactly what we do here. To start so thinking, to, to, to start thinking differently. No revenue, no income, no possible stream of income. How do you fix that? <laughs> well, I mean, I think we talked about this a while ago, the fact that we have pushed so much onto the local property taxpayers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, raising the homestead exemption this last time was to address that to some extent. There's a cost with that. I think I'm the only one up here that was around when in 2006 when we had to take the vote initially on that franchise tax, mm -hmm. uh, the margin tax. And uh, at the time, you know, it was a bipartisan recommendation yeah. from uh, 24 industries, I think, were on yeah. the committee that came up with it. It was not the most ideal situation, but it was everybody agreed to it. It was supposed to replace property taxes. We reduced them from uh, $1.50 to a dollar. That cost us $14 billion to make that replacement over that two-year budget cycle. Uh, and, and, you know, we've never had enough revenue streams, additional revenue streams coming in to cover that. We were always counting on general a revenue growth to help cover it and and that just it's it's it became unsustainable in a lot of ways and it's part of what people refer to as the structural deficit because it's always in there now and and talk about a while ago I'm sorry but talk about promises made and not kept that's what I was referring to in, in terms of the state made promises to the school districts you do that we will make sure you're whole we haven't kept those promises 2011 the cuts came 5.4 billion dollars and, and as Justin was saying, uh, we still haven't fully recovered from that with our, our public education. So I've be, I'm being politifact checked on it, so I can tell you that I think okay. right now <laughs> it's 31% of the school districts <laughs> this last year uh, were still not up to their level. And I think it's now projected to be like 23% or something. But bottom line is, a lot of our school districts are still getting less today than they got in 2011 prior to the cuts of 2011. California has nine public tier one research universities. Mm -hmm. We have three. Um, so my question is about the budget and higher ed. As you know, research universities provide significant economic investments to our communities. Uh, in particular, how will the legislature deal with trying to uh, at least compete with California on this score, especially with regards to the Puff Fund, which doesn't look to be about beyond the we're all looking at each other. <laughs> <laughs> on that one. Red seems so far away right now yeah. um, as we're working on all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we, we put more money into research this last time, and it's certainly been a priority of the governor that yeah. we that we do that. Um, we did that. We also did the increase in the in the uh, graduate medical uh, education as well, um, significantly to keep our healthcare professionals here. When we educate them, 
they go to undergrad here, they go to medical school here, and because there's no GME spots, they leave. We've educated all these doctors who do their residency somewhere else and they never come home. So the purpose of putting more money in GME, which we did a lot of, is to, is to keep them here, to make sure that our doctors are trained here, they actually stay here. So that was pretty, a pretty good investment on our part to address healthcare, to make sure our doctors are here, we have sufficient uh, physicians, uh, but also from a standpoint of just making sure that you know, our investment in those, in those students um, stays local as well. So we've done a lot in the, on the higher ed side um, the last couple of years, I don't know about this session or even really thought about kind of going forward. Yeah, part of the issue too has been, uh, you know, a state as big as ours trying to have uh, regionally some research universities that give our, our citizens choices throughout the state. Um, and as you mentioned, we only have three in the state, two of which are public. And, and so we've had this, these emerging research universities that we've been trying to invest in. That's really spreading thin the resources instead of maybe strategically picking some to really uh, invest more in so they can really get to that level. But we have seen some movement like with the University of Houston, for example. Um, and, and, and the Puff Fund, you know, that's something that does keep getting brought up and we talk about. I represent districts here in Austin and uh, University of Texas, of course, and uh, know what historically that fund is supposed to be for. Um, I know that there are others that would like to see it opened up in different ways. We do have a separate fund that we use to try to help the non-PUF institutions, right. but, but it is a challenge in a state this large to invest adequately, and we haven't done that. We have not fully restored the funding that was cut to higher education either, right. so it it's continues to be a big challenge when you're talking about public education and higher education. How are we going to fund those to a sufficient level that give us the workforce we need? And right now, 38%, I think it is, is the number of our, uh, of our young cohort that have some kind of post-secondary credential. And we've got this new strategic plan, 60 by 30 Texas, right. to try to have 60% prepared with a post-secondary uh, credential by uh, the year 2030. That's, that's going to be a high hurdle. And, and I think just to add to that, I mean, uh, and kind of goes to competitiveness, but um, you know the affordability factor is is huge too, right? When you talk about affording, um, you know, staying in state as opposed to you mentioned California institutions, I mean that's something that we need to be mindful of as well, right? I mean we we're all aware of you know the increasing issue with student debt. Um, how do we you know grow these universities, invest in them, and also keep them still uh, economically attainable for a working family to afford? And I think that's going to be a big issue too because I think there's discussion about um, you know taking away some tuition set aside money and um, but that goes to competitiveness as well I believe um, and you know it's going to be a big issue I think again this session. And of course higher education to me always includes the career in tech. Mm -hmm. Texas State Technical College and, and places like that because uh, we have a, a campus in Hutto, Texas which I represent and that is incredible education for the workforce incredible opportunity for the workforce when you're talking about, get this, a two semester, two semester fiber optic course at Texas State uh, Technical College, fiber optics. After two semesters, companies like AT&T are picking these guys up and paying 70, 80 grand a year to run fiber optics for them. There are some great, great opportunities to make really good money and provide for your family that aren't four year degrees but are really good jobs and really good opportunity uh, to provide. And so I think we want higher education. I always put a disclaimer in there to continue to work on not just the four year, but to look at the other opportunities in two year and with, and with 
the tremendous benefits they bring value to the state as well. I think we are out of time. I'm sure you guys are sticking, willing to stick around and answer some questions. But thank you all so much for coming. Enjoy thank your you. lunch. Food trucks out on the porch. Thank you. Guys.